Well, what a great time it is to be here with you. Sheila and I are always so uh, glad to be here. The worship music is just wonderful, and uh, we just love you people, and it's, it's great to be here. And uh, we're going to continue a series that I started last week, this morning. This is going to be the second sermon in the series, and the series is titled, There Are Predictable Liabilities in Discerning the Supernatural. And today, the sermon is about the liabilities and failing to discern Jesus' power and authority. And you notice that I have a note and an outline there for you to follow along with. And we're in Matthew chapter 8, by the way, uh, verses 1 to 13. And I'll get there in just a moment. It seems that no matter where Jesus was, he was either healing, preaching, or teaching. Matthew records this in the last verses in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, right before the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And he writes there, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness, physical ailments, weaknesses, and illnesses among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him people who were miserably sick, people who were afflicted and in torments. This is the word for the torture rack, by the way. People tortured with great illness due to various adversities. And they brought to him those who were demon-possessed. It was thought that the inability to speak and blindness and insanity were all attributed to demonic possession. They brought epileptics, literally those who are moonstruck, lunatics, insane persons, and paralytics, those who couldn't walk and those who were palsied. And he healed them by restoring them to their right condition. Even in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, Peter says this, that God sent the word of peace to the children of Israel through Jesus' preaching, and that word was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee. Peter spoke about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and that to Jesus all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. And so this is the last verse in chapter 4 of Matthew where he writes, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And then, of course, as you're familiar, in chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount with this statement. And seeing the multitudes that had been following him around on account of his preaching, teaching, and miracles, he went up on the mountain, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And as we saw last week, he began to teach them 
what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom and the promises of the difficulties and the challenges in being a discerning kingdom citizen, the persecution, the tribulation, the affliction and harassment, followed ultimately by the promise of eternal blessedness in the presence of God. And the last sentence in the Sermon on the Mount says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. His curing of diseases and ailments are certainly considered to be miracles by us, but for Jesus, the curing of diseases were more significant than simply putting people back together again. Jesus' miracles and teaching were the objective signs of the nearness of the kingdom of God. They were pledges of the spiritual healing and deliverances which were prophesied with the coming of the Messianic age. And so we want to look at his authority in teaching first and then in his power in healing this morning. The difference between the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the scribes is that Jesus spoke from the authority given to him by God. It says this in John chapter 12, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. And therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. <clears throat> Jesus taught and he spoke what he received from God. He was committed to deliver everything that God gave to him. And what he delivered had no other end but the salvation and eternal blessedness of men. And this is why it was said, never a man spoke like this. Because the substance of what he taught was filled with truth and the people recognized it. Truth about the reality of the Father's existence and the character of the Father and the importance of recognizing how to worship the Father truthfully and how to submit to him prayerfully. The crowds recognized in Jesus a unique and intimate knowledge of the person of God. There was nothing unfamiliar to Jesus about who God the Father is. The crowds could suddenly see the simplicity of true religion. And that true worship happens when we understand who the Father is. And when we realize the truth about the reality of our sinfulness and the importance of lamenting and agreeing with God about our sinfulness. And then consider his power in healing. People recognized in his manner and words his authority and power to rule and command in a way that was unheard of previously. And the crowds were witnessing repeatedly that there was no case of disease or infirmity beyond his power to correct and to heal. He spoke with authority to unclean spirits, 
who recognized Jesus immediately and begged him not to torment them. Spirits that had no choice but to obey him when he cast them out. The crowds witnessed his power and authority to rebuke fever and heal the most dreadful of diseases, and all they could do was be amazed. And hearing and seeing all that Jesus did led the crowds to be utterly amazed with him, astonished at his teaching authority and his healing power. He was revealing to them the power he possessed within the spiritual realm and the authority with which he operated within that realm and the complete confidence of his teaching about spiritual reality and truth regularly caused them to lose their mental composure. The word amazed literally means to strike someone out of their self-possession. You can find that in Thayer's Greek lexicon. To strike someone with panic or shock or astonishment. The word suggests that when they heard him teach and saw him operate within the spiritual realm, their minds were blown. He was leaving them no choice but to recognize that he was the promised Savior and Messiah of Israel. And often it was the most unlikely of people who recognized his otherworldly power and authority. And that's where we pick up our text in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. So if you'll turn with me and we'll look at the text of Matthew 8, 1 to 4, which begins like this. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so Matthew records that the first person to approach Jesus and his disciples is a leper. There's a fair degree of confusion about leprosy in Israel at that time, so let's consider what it is to be a leper for a moment. You'll note that one isn't healed of leprosy, then they are cleansed of leprosy. And this leper was seeking to be cleansed of his leprosy. The biggest issue for the leper, of course, was that his leprosy made him a ceremonial and social outcast. The leper is the most unfortunate of people, the most repulsive and ill-respected person imaginable because leprosy was a loathsome and filthy disease. The infection led to damage of the nerves and the respiratory tract and skin and eyes. The leper emitted a very unpleasant odor. Leprosy decreased the ability to feel pain in the fingers and toes, and the damage to those extremities came because, repeated inv- because of repeated injuries and infections from unnoticed wounds. 
This was a concern even back in Leviticus chapter 13, where it was written, the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. He was consigned to live in wretchedness. This is how Trench, in a great book, in Notes on the Miracles and Parables of Our Lord, describes the condition of leprosy. He said, leprosy was nothing short of a living death, a corrupting of all character and temperament, a poisoning of the very springs of life, a disintegration little by little of the whole body so that one limb after another actually decayed and fell away. He was himself a dreadful walking parable of death, Trench said. He bore the emblems of death, torn garments, mourning for himself as someone who was already dead. The Jews called the person who had leprosy as someone who had received the stroke of God from the finger of God. They said that a man's true repentance was the only condition his leprosy had left him. Because the Jews believed that leprosy was the outward and visible sign of an innermost spiritual corruption. But folks, think of the extreme suffering of this leper. The terribleness of the infliction of this disease. The horror and anxiety that must have gripped his mind when the first tiny scabs began to appear on his body. And the obsession that must have tormented him with the desire to scratch and itch at the disease, leading to a compulsion to rip the scabs off to avoid being identified with the horrible disease that would always lead to your death. And the text says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Behold is used when something unexpected happens that you need to pay attention to. In this case, it's kind of like, wow, check this out. A leper is walking up to Jesus to be cleansed, and he neither announces that he is unclean, nor does he keep his distance of six feet required by the law. Luke said he was full of leprosy. He was in a very advanced stage of leprosy. And everyone knew by taking one look at him that he was as good as dead. He was covered entirely with leprosores. But look at the way he approaches Jesus. He kneels before him in full humility. He addresses him as Lord, as Master. And he reveals his true attitude and understanding toward Jesus. He fully believes in the power of Jesus to cleanse his leprosy with a single word. 
You can cleanse me if you are willing. He places his own pathetic case and his own cause in Jesus' hands. Just like a true trusting child of God should place himself in God's trust. Which demonstrates that this leper's faith is of the highest order. Let me mention an aside to you. Jesus described all men, by the way, as spiritual lepers. Matthew used the word tokos in the first line of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word for poor is tokos. Blessed are those who are beggars in spirit, he said first off. This tokos describes the physical lifestyle of the leper. He lives on other people's alms. This is a person living in a state of deep destitution. He owns nothing at all. Tokos refers to a person who cowers down and hides oneself for fear. One who slinks and crouches with the idea of roving about all day in wretchedness. Think about the starving dog living at the dump, scrounging around for scraps. How fitting that this would be the first person to come upon Jesus when he comes down from the mountain. And how curious it is that Jesus said that those who are beggars like this in spirit are blessed because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Wow. The picture we get here of the first two healing encounters Jesus has is that these two individuals really get who Jesus is. They recognize Jesus' divine character and power, and they both willfully submit to that reality. Folks, faith can't go any farther than that. Both of these individuals, the leper and the centurion, have the fullest assurance and commitment that a believer can have in who Jesus is. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus reaches out and touches him, though he didn't need to touch him to cleanse him from his leprosy, ignoring the Jewish law to touch not the unclean thing. But anyway, Jesus couldn't be contaminated and would never be defiled by anything. People witnessed that in Jesus, health overcame sickness. Purity overcame defilement. Life overcame death. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And Jesus seems to say this because he's motivated by the desire to not have his ministry impeded by more multitudes coming to him for healing than he could possibly bear. We know this because Mark wrote of it in chapter 1, his discussion of the same leper. He said, 
And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, Seeing that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing these things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And then he adds, However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction anyway. Well, Matthew goes on and says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. A centurion is a commander of 80 to 100 soldier units in Roman and Roman-influenced armies. A centurion was the highest rank that a non-commissioned soldier could attain in the Roman army. In addressing Jesus as Lord, the centurion recognizes the supremacy of Christ's authority. It's ambiguous, the word that he uses. It could be his child or his servant. But he was terribly tormented. He was vexed with grievous pains. Most English translations suggest that Jesus made a statement, I will come and heal him. But literally, Jesus uses a participle here. I, having come, will heal him. Several commentators suggest that Jesus is asking a deliberative rhetorical question here. I, having come, will heal him? Am I to come to your residence and heal him? As if to engage the centurion to see just how much faith he really does have. Is his faith going to overcome all the religious and cultural boundaries between Jews and heathens? Will your faith set aside the socially awkward situation that my arriving at your house would create for both of us? Let's see if it will. So in other words, you're asking me, a Jew, to come to your house to heal this person, and you don't have an issue with that? You want a Jew coming to your house where I would be offending every precept of my religion? Is that what you're asking? And yet, how can the centurion refuse to open his house to this healer knowing the desperate situation his servant is in? Note something here as well. It wasn't necessary that the centurion's son believe in order to be healed. Just like the people who let down their paralytic friend through the roof, it was their faith that made the paralytic whole. And then, sort of thinking through the issue, the centurion protests that he's not worthy that Jesus should come into his house. I'm not adequate enough. I'm not sufficient, he says. I'm unsuitable for you to come under my roof, which made me pause. Are you like me? Because I'm pretty sure I'd be happy to have Jesus come into my house as a guest. 
And then I was thinking, what might I be missing here about my own unworthiness and his authority over me? What a statement in recognition of who Jesus is right there, isn't it? The, the humility is noteworthy, right? He's not approaching Jesus like he's one of his friends. And even though the centurion has authority over lots of people, he's certainly not acting like he has any authority over Jesus. And so he's in a conundrum, isn't he? I want you to heal him, but I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion recognizes himself as a heathen. Out of the fold of God, a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel, and therefore unworthy to receive under his roof the Redeemer of Israel. And the centurion here recognizes that Jesus' authority was far greater than any authority he had. The centurion commanded men to do things physically possible and had the authority to make them do it with threats of punishment, perhaps, and discipline. But the centurion recognized that Jesus had the authority to command things to happen that were humanly impossible. Jesus could command things beyond human capacity, healing God-awful diseases, Casting out demons, raising dead people, and the like. When Jesus commanded that diseases and demons leave a person, they didn't have a choice whether to remain or depart. His word alone was powerful in and of itself. And this is simply one of the basic attributes of deity. God commands light to shine in the darkness. God commands the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. That's just the power of deity. But so many fail to recognize it. And as Matthew unfolds the gospel, it becomes clearer and clearer that the person who came down from the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount that they were so enamored of and were following anxiously was the Son of God. And when Jesus heard what the centurion had said, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And I thought, say what? I haven't seen this response of faith in the extent of my power and authority anywhere in Israel. Here's a Gentile that gets my character and my mission and recognizes the absolute extent of my power and my authority. And I thought to myself, okay, um, Greater faith than John the Baptist? 
Yeah. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, uh, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to him, go and tell John the things which you hear and the things that you see. The blind see and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the tokos, the poor, have the gospel preached to them. Isn't that evidence? Then I thought to myself, greater faith than Mary and Joseph? Yeah. Remember in Luke chapter 2, now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So when they saw him, the parents, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them because they didn't get the power of his ability to heal and his teaching ministry. And so Jesus is saying, this centurion gets the authority and the power invested me in me better than any that I've seen in all of Israel. And then Jesus decides to make a point about the centurion's faith. And he turns to those who are following him and he says, you know, in fact, many of the heathen who have this kind of faith are going to be saved. And many Jews who don't have this kind of faith are going to be thrown into outer darkness. And you know, people were going, is he talking about heathens? There must have been a few wondering about that statement, right? And then he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Wow. In that place there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Many of those who were promised the kingdom of heaven, in this case the, the Israelites, the natural heirs of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom, will forfeit their inheritance because they lack a faith like this centurion who's a Gentile. Many Jews will be cast out from that feast because they lack this kind of faith. But Gentiles from all over the world will enter the kingdom and sit down with the patriarchs. Because it's all about discerning who I am and then trusting it and believing it. For failure to believe like this centurion, many will be cast into the darkness outside the limits of the lighted palace, probably a reference to Messiah's kingdom. The awfulness and the terror of the outer darkness produce this kind of weeping 
And this kind of gnashing of teeth, this is the kind of weeping and gnashing of teeth that cannot be known anywhere else but for those who die in unbelief. This is the most terrible warning against unbelief. Even for those who were supposed to believe and had plenty of opportunity to believe. And it says, if Jesus is asking them, those who are following him, are you ready to make the choice? Are you going to take your place as a rightful and faithful son of the kingdom and of the promise of blessedness? Or are you going to choose the place of ministry, of misery and torment in outer darkness? Which one? It's a repeat of chapter 7, isn't it? Are you going to choose the narrow gate or the broad and the easy gate? Which one? Here again, we have the repeated announcement of eternal blessing for those who enter the narrow gate and follow Jesus and the destruction, utter ruin of those who do not follow Jesus because of unbelief. And here again, the text is expressing the seriousness and the importance of being faithful to Jesus. But you know what else it is? It's a reminder of Jesus' invitation to everyone to choose to come into the inner circle of the faithful and to sit down and celebrate what Jesus has accomplished for us in eternity. And this is how serious faith is to Jesus. If you don't have a genuine, reliable faith in Jesus, you're not going to be there. There won't be a minute of celebration for the faithless in eternity. How futile it will, it will be for people who had the opportunity to believe in Jesus because of his teaching and his healing ministry but find that their failure to grasp that opportunity makes them outcasts from God's kingdom. Don't count on trusting your heritage or your natural descent or your works or any of your privileges to count for anything instead of simply believing and trusting in the power and authority of Jesus demonstrated in the Scriptures. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you've believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is at the top of the mountain, calling the crowds to him, teaching the people how to think about the law and how to respond to the teaching of the law how to think correctly about the person of God and the choices to make regarding the degree of your faithfulness to him. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain and the people are following him and he immediately begins interacting with the people who are responding to him. He's touching them. He's healing their diseases and their infirmities. And he's challenging them to look at how genuine their faith is. He's checking to see the extent to which they understand that his teaching and healing ministry demonstrate that he 
teaches and heals with God's power and authority. And he begins bringing the kingdom of God, the intimacy of God, the fellowship of God, right into the midst of the people. They don't have to go to the temple. And the first three people that Matthew records Jesus interacting with are a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Three groups of people that are the most separated from the intimacy of God in Israel's culture. The most separated from the intimate worship of God in the temple. And we see Jesus breaking down the barriers of separation by bringing fallen humanity into the communion of a holy God, breaking down the walls that separate us from our understanding of God, making the kingdom of God available to everyone who has faith. Well, the scriptures speak often of how people respond in amazement to Jesus. And folks, there are plenty of things in this world to be amazed about. A while back, I watched a video about a child who had become a savant at the age of four because of an epileptic attack that changed the function of his brain. And he had suddenly become fascinated and gifted with an advanced understanding of numbers and how they worked, and he had become utterly in tune with mathematics and physics and everything to do with numbers. And as he got older, some mathematicians and doctors set up a test for him to see just how his mind worked with numbers. And they asked him if he could recite or figure out any of the infinite decimal numbers that followed the 3.14 of pi. The numbers of pi appear in many formulas across mathematics and physics. Typically, it's represented by the numbers 3.14, but in actuality, its decimal representation never ends, nor do any of the decimals fall into any kind of repeating pattern. And so the test for this man was to see how many of the never-ending permanently repeating decibel numbers he could recite that followed 3.14. And so they turned on the cameras to record the interview, and they turned on the computer to begin to calculate this list of unending, non-repeating numbers that followed the 3.14. And he recited 22,500 of the decimals that followed 3.14 in perfect sequence. And everyone witnessing that that interview was absolutely astounded. Their minds were blown from his absolute accuracy in reciting each number in sequence. Folks, there are plenty of things to be amazed about in this world. And you know, it's curious to me that the Gospels report that Jesus was amazed only twice. And on both occasions, he was was amazed concerning the reality of people's faith. Jesus was amazed twice 
one time at the absence of people's faith, and then also at the extent of someone's faith. Faith and the lack of faith amazed Jesus. The depth of it and the shallowness of it in the human heart and spirit blew his mind. In the former case, Jesus was amazed at the unbelief of the people of his own hometown who were most familiar with him. Those people in particular should have believed in him because they witnessed his teaching and his healing ministry firsthand. Mark records this in chapter 6. He says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished. Their minds were blown. They were amazed at what he was saying and teaching. And they were saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? And then Mark said, so they were offended at him. What? They were amazed at his teaching and healing, but their response wasn't increased faith. They were offended at him, Mark says. Watching him and listening to him caused them to continuously stumble and be filled with disgust for Jesus. And he marveled because of their unbelief. How hard must one's heart be to fail to discern that they are in the presence of divinity? C.S. Lewis, you know, struggled with atheism until J.R.R. Tolkien challenged him to come to faith in Jesus. And C.S. Lewis said, every conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. There's so much within ourselves that must first be defeated in order for us to come full circle to believe in the reality of the authority and the power found only in Jesus. Every conversion is the story of a blessed defeat of our unfaithfulness, our rebellion, our pride, our rejection of truth, and our hardened contempt for Jesus. In the passage from this morning, Jesus was amazed at the faith of a centurion, a Gentile, someone wholly disconnected from the Jewish religion and from who Jesus was. Yet he clearly overcame so many obstacles that could have kept him from believing in the power and authority in Jesus, and then he completely submitted to the reality of it. I like what Blaise Pascal said, and this is probably very accurate. In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't want to believe. How can so many witness the healings of Jesus and hear his teaching and not believe that everything he did demonstrated the authority and the power given to him by God the Father? That in itself is simply amazing that you could observe that and go, eh, I'm kind of offended. 
by discerning, be discerning of your own sinfulness, to never let yourselves become indifferent to the marvels of divine grace. Even when witnessing those marvels, which allows you to see the depth of your own corruption, when we recognize that in Jesus is the presence of a holy and perfect God. Keep believing in the redemption and the spiritual healing Jesus has and that God has revealed in his person. Folks, listen. Jesus was amazed at faith because you can't see and you can't trust and you can't engage the reality of God without faith. Jesus reminded us throughout the Sermon on the Mount that the unseen God is the one great and absolute reality. If we can penetrate the core of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's this. To trust God is to enter the world of fact and truth, not the world of fiction and make-believe. And to put our trust in God is to step into the world of eternal blessing. It is faith that enables us to see and live in God's reality. And next week we're going to see how important that idea is. Pray with me, will you? Father, what challenging words again, like in chapter 7, for us to consider how important you see faith to be in our eternal destiny, in the way we understand who Jesus is, in our comprehension of the Father. Father, I ask that the words that you have spoken here in Matthew and Mark will be a reminder to us to be challenged by your reality and your truth. And I pray that you continue to bless this congregation, to understand this more fully, to experience it more fully, and to encourage each other with these truths more fully. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.